Would you stand and listen for the Word of God? This morning from Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. Then Jesus began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, Do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Seraphath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Now we've picked up this story right where we left off last Sunday. It's the same setting. It's basically the second part of the story we started with. If you were listening closely and were here last week, you may have noticed that last week we finished with verse 21. Today we started with verse 21. Right after Jesus has read this scroll from the prophet Isaiah, then he says to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That is... Jesus saying, I'm proclaiming this year of the Lord, this kingdom of God, where things are going to begin to change dramatically. The blind are going to see, the oppressed go free, the poor are going to hear good news. And this is being fulfilled today. I am proclaiming it today, and in your hearing is being fulfilled And the people at his hometown synagogue seemed to be very happy about this. Luke records that all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. But Jesus seems to sense that they want him to say more or do more. Perhaps show more of the deeds they had heard about. Luke says everyone had eyes fixed on him. And if I can paraphrase, he says, well, if you want more, let me give you some more. Let me tell you about these two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Both of them called to ministry, leaders of our people. And yet, even though there were needs among our people, God sent them to another people. Even though there were widows here that needed help, God sent Elijah someplace else. There were leopards who needed healing. And God sent Elisha someplace else. And it seems that between verse 22 and 28, as Jesus reminds them of these prophets, the people go from delight and amazement 
to being filled with rage. When Jesus dares say that God is at work beyond our group, beyond our religion, beyond our town, beyond our nation, people do not respond well. Jesus is saying that God is saving and healing and blessing people beyond their own, beyond their own circle, beyond those they consider to be within probably the circle of God's family. And when Jesus begins to tell them that, even though He's at His hometown synagogue, presumably with friends and family, Luke says they become filled with rage and are so mad they stop the service, rise up, take him out the building, out of the town, to the brow of a hill, and they're ready to throw him off, to kill him, to shut him up. They are worked up. Something has happened. What happened? Why did they go from amazement and delight to rage, ready to kill? If we think about it for a little bit and how humans act, probably is not too surprising what happened. Most groups of humans are what sociologists call ethnocentric. They're focused on their group. They prefer their group and how they do things. And when they encounter people who look different or dress differently, they often hold them at an arm's length. And sometimes when those groups begin to mix, some people say, No, no, that is going to ruin us. We cannot do this. And they become very emotional. I was caused to think about this in a new way just recently. We started a class here that's going to be running for the next nine months about race relations and faith. We're reading a book in that class. I put the title in your outline, Race, Are We So Different? Question mark. It's written and published by some anthropologists, the American Anthropology Association. So these are researchers and scholars and professors who study the human race and the history of the human race. And they say some very interesting things that caused me to begin to think about my own upbringing. I grew up just south of here in a little county seat, Okmulgee, Oklahoma. I was thinking about growing up there. Until I was going into the seventh grade, white kids and black kids were not allowed in the same school. My elementary school was white kids. There were others for black kids. Junior high school, high school, all the same. We were segregated. But as I was getting ready to go into the seventh grade, the federal government had mandated that all schools integrate. And so we did so. My mother became the president of the PTA for our junior high school, trying to navigate this new reality. My father was on the school board, so we were very involved in this. We were for equal treatment of all people, equal education, equal rights. But not everyone was of that mind. You heard people saying, no mixing of the races. This is the worst thing that can happen. This is a calamity. This is a catastrophe. And there were loud voices all around. But what was interesting to me as I was reading the book is that these 
people, our best scholars who study this, say there's not enough biological difference among us to even have races within the human race. Oh, there are differences, but not enough that, in fact, skin color is such a small part of our genetic makeup that it doesn't hardly matter scientifically. Listen, listen to what they wrote. Historians point out that our popular beliefs about human races did not exist before the late 17th century. These authors agree that race was essentially a cultural invention about human differences that had its basis in social, political, and economic realities. Modern Science now holds that there is no basis in science for the categories of people we call races. And yet we fill out forms all the time that ask us to note our race. And my schools were segregated because of that. And these scholars are pointing out that that's a false distinction as we use it. It's caused me to think about this in a new way. It's something to think about. Maybe we can get a better handle on how this dynamic works within groups to think about family groups. The family you grew up in, did everybody have their own tube of toothpaste or did you have to share one? Were pets to live inside or outside? Or could they go and come as they wished? Did you get to eat as soon as you got home at the end of the day or... In your family, did everyone wait until everyone was home and then we sit down to eat? Do we loan money to family members or is that strictly off limits? Do we believe in having loaded firearms in the home? Do we spank children for discipline? However you answer those questions, for most of us, it's closely related to our family of origin. How it was done when we were growing up. Because that's what we're most comfortable with. Because it's what we're most familiar with. But most of us take the next step and say, that's the right way. The way I was raised, that's the right way. And so it's not uncommon when doing counseling with newly married couples that they have run into conflict over the toothpaste or the pets. Not a huge deal, except for it brings up lots of emotion. Maybe you've been in that experience where all of a sudden you felt like you had to defend your way, defend your family, because that's the right way. That's the way we always do it. We tend to be focused fairly narrowly on our group and how we've been taught and how we've been trained. So if you're a nation or a people struggling to have a clear identity and struggling for survival and surrounded with different kinds of people, it's easy to see how these boundaries and our way is so important. And yet Jesus walks in to speak to His people, the Hebrew people who are struggling with that, and says, God loves even those outsiders. God loves those foreigners, those Gentiles, if you will. And in fact, He cites some instances where God has even shown favor to those outside the group. Send some of the best and brightest to be in ministry with those outside the group. 
they come, become emotional. You can kind of see how that would happen. If not, just think about this. Don't answer out loud, but think about this. What you feel like if I say immigration or immigration debate or path to citizenship, you probably have some thoughts about that. You may have some emotions around that discussion. Well, Jesus has gone to his hometown synagogue with rave reviews and waded right into this emotional territory with a much broader perspective of how God is at work than apparently the others had in that synagogue. He is proclaiming that God is at work beyond their group and that He has a purpose beyond their boundaries. You can hear it as you read through the Gospels and other places. For God so loved the world. I am the light of the world, Jesus said. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Can you hear it? It is an inclusive message, this kingdom of God that Jesus is proclaiming. You can even hear it on a more personal level throughout the Gospels. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. But more than that, He says, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. For God makes it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Or this, when he says, I give you a new commandment. That you shall love one another. Love one another as I have loved you. Oh, I think when Jesus began to elaborate on that Isaiah scroll proclaiming that things were going to change and that God was in the change business. He offended the group that were there that day so much so that they were this close to killing him on the spot. It can be difficult to broaden our circle of relationships and to embrace those who look or dress or act or worship differently than we do. I've been telling you, as we've been working through these stories in Luke, that I kept thinking when I was reading them months ago about Stephen Covey's work and these seven habits of highly effective people. We looked at the first three already. He calls those habits of independence. What makes us independent or clear about our own lives? He says the first habit is be proactive or take responsibility for your life. He says, secondly, begin with the end in mind. Know where you're going. Know what it looks like. Map it out. The third habit, he says, is put first things first. Make sure you have your most important roles attended to, prioritized, ordered your life around those. So those are habits of independence. But then he has four, five, and six. And these next three habits focus on inter dependence that is how we relate and work effectively with others i've put them in your outline they can help us with this issue that jesus has raised today 
Habit four is think win-win. Covey observes that so often we think win-lose or lose-win or sometimes lose-lose. We just destroy the whole thing because we're not getting our way. But he says when we're working with others, we're more effective if we begin by thinking win-win. How can you get what you're hoping for and how can I get what I'm hoping for? How can we do this together? He says habit five goes right along with that. Seek first to understand then to be understood. He says so often conflict is simply a matter of not understanding the other person. And we assume when we hear them speak or watch them act that we know what they're thinking and what they mean. He says so much better to stop and take time to listen first. Seek first to understand. Listen first. Then habit six he calls synergize. Synergized by that, he means simply that we can achieve more together than we can alone. In fact, this is the basis for the way the United Methodist Church is organized. We didn't have this word when they were organizing years and years ago. At least we didn't use it in founding documents. We call it the connectional system. We believe that all the United Methodist Churches together can do more than any one of us can do alone. So particularly for mission and outreach, we all contribute to some common efforts so that we can create more good around the world. We've been doing really well with that. It's synergy or synergize. But of course it requires high trust and a deep desire to understand another and a willingness to take the time And to look for the gifts and the strengths that all bring. And see if we can figure out a way to use them. Maybe not your way, maybe not my way, maybe a third way. But a way that would use them where we all could do more and achieve more as we work together. The Bible says we're created by God. And that we're created as social beings. That our lives find their deepest richness and most meaning in our closest relationships. That when we're able to work together, it's what makes a life feel full and meaningful and significant. Jesus invites us, just as He did His hometown folks, to broaden our circle of relations. And the promise is that we not only get to experience more of God's family, but we get to experience more of God. May it be so for us. Amen.